I want you to do something with me as we begin this message, and if you will really do this, I think we'll cause you to appreciate in a far greater way the book, the story that we're going to look at. Try to imagine what you would feel like if you had the experience of some foreign nation invading our land to conquer us. In the process, this foreign nation destroyed all of our homes, our church building, our shops, our recreational facilities, everything. And then we were all taken away into captivity for many, many years. Think about that for a moment. Of course, unless we've experienced anything close to that, there's no way we really can imagine what that would be like and what that would feel like. But try to the best of your ability to enter into the emotion of that. And then think about how you would feel if after 10 or 15 or 20 years, we were allowed to return to this beautiful area that we love so much. On the one hand, we would feel tremendous joy and exuberance at the thought of going home. On the other hand, once we arrived there could easily be a sense of overwhelming despondency at the thought of trying to rebuild our land, rebuild our homes, and rebuild our lives. Those are some of the emotions the people of Israel felt many years ago when they were released after 70 years of captivity. And part of their story is told for us in the the book of Ezra, which will be our focus in this message. So if you're not already there, turn with me in Hebrew Scripture to the book of Ezra prior to Nehemiah and Esther. It's after 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, then the book of Ezra. For us to appreciate the message of Ezra, we have to understand the historical background and the setting of this book. So let me review that for you just briefly. The nation of Israel divided in 931 B.C. The northern kingdom was called the kingdom of Israel, and the southern kingdom was called the kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel had no righteous kings in all of their history, so they didn't last very long. Actually, quite a long time because because of God's patience. But in the big picture scheme of things, not a long time. In 722 B.C., God judged them by allowing the kingdom of of Assyria to wipe out their nation and to carry them away into captivity, lead them away. In fact, there are some reliefs of the captivity of the northern kingdom of Israel by the Assyrians, reliefs that are etched, painted in various places that show them with hooks through their jaws, like fish hooks, large hooks with ropes being led away into Assyrian captivity. The southern kingdom of Judah did have some righteous kings, so they lasted longer. In spite of the fact that God warned them over and over again about what had happened to their northern brethren, the southern kingdom of Judah continued their downward slide until the Lord finally brought judgment on them by allowing the kingdom of Babylon to take them into captivity. The deportation into Babylon actually had three phases to it. The first one was in 606 B.C., the second one was in 597 B.C., 
And the final one was in 586 B.C. And of course, that's when the temple was destroyed, the city of Jerusalem was decimated, and for all intents and purposes, that was the end of the southern kingdom. But God wasn't finished with the Jewish people. Remember, God had made an unconditional covenant with Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 15. God was going to fulfill his promises and carry out his program in spite of the failure of his people. To say it another way, even though they were unfaithful, God was going to be faithful. In fact, God had already stated that he would eventually bring his wayward people back from their captivity. Hold your finger here in Ezra and flip over to the right to Jeremiah chapter 29. After the Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah chapter 29. (coughs) Even though this section of Scripture is after the book of Ezra in our Bibles, we're turning to the right, it, it was written almost 70 years before the events of the book of Ezra. That's so important to keep in mind. This was written some 70 years prior to what we're going to study in this message from the book of Ezra. So Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 1. Now these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the remainder of the elders who were carried away captive, to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had carried away captive from Jerusalem to Babylon. Skip down to verse 10. For thus says the Lord, After 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord. And I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord. And I will bring you to this place from which I cause you to be carried away captive. What a tremendous promise. God is so merciful and gracious. He was forced by the actions of his own people to judge his people by allowing them to be taken away into captivity. But he promised to bring them back so they could rebuild their city, rebuild their temple, and rebuild their lives. That's what the book of Ezra is all about. It is a marvelous illustration of God's faithfulness to his people in spite of all of their unfaithfulness. And beloved, I hope that encourages you. It does me because I'm certainly not always as faithful to the Lord as I ought to be. But the good news is that He is committed to His people regardless. Now that doesn't mean that He won't chasten us and discipline us when we need it, because certainly He will. The Lord chastens those whom He loves. So says the writer of Hebrews, quoting out of Hebrew Scripture. But what a thrill to know that God is faithful to us and committed to us regardless of our blunders, our failures, and our shortcomings. That is the powerful message of the book of Ezra. So let's go back there. As the book of Ezra opens, there has just been a major change in the world. Remember, 
It was Nebuchadnezzar and the kingdom of Babylon that had taken away the people into captivity. But eventually, the Babylonian kingdom fell to another world empire, the empire of the Persians and their king named Cyrus. That brings us to chapter 1, verse 1, where we read, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is among you of all his people? May his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. And whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the men of his place help him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, besides the free will offerings for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Now, I hope you've appreciated what you just read there. And if you have, if not literally, then at least figuratively, figuratively your jaw should be on the floor. This is an amazing thing that this pagan king would do. This was a pagan king. We know from history that Cyrus had a policy to conciliate captive peoples and their religions, but this goes way beyond that. Cyrus not only encouraged the people of Israel to go back to their homeland, he even aided them by supplying silver, gold, goods, and livestock. Now that begs the question, why in the world did Cyrus do this? I'll tell you the answer. He did this because God said he would do it. This is amazing. About 200 years before this happened, God had predicted through the prophet Isaiah that Cyrus would do this very thing. Hold your place again here in Ezra and skip over to the right again to the book of Isaiah this time, just prior to Jeremiah, where we were a moment ago. Isaiah chapter 44. Isaiah 44. Again, it's important to remember that even though the book of Isaiah comes after the book of Ezra in our Bibles, his prophesying took place about two centuries before the events of Ezra. Our Bibles the, 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 do not have the books listed in the, the order of chronology. They're listed in more of a, a logical order, and we don't have time to go into that. But suffice it to say, Isaiah, his prophesying took place about two centuries before Ezra. And with that in mind, look at verse 24. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and he who formed you from the womb, I am Yahweh, who makes all things, who stretches out the heavens all alone, who spreads abroad the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of the babblers and drives diviners mad, who turns wise men backward and makes their knowledge foolishness, who confirms the word of his servant and performs the counsel of his messengers, who says to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited. To the cities of Judah, you shall be built. And I will raise up her waste places, who says to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up your rivers. Now watch this. Here is the key verse. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. Now remember, beloved, God wrote this through Isaiah 200 years before Cyrus even existed. 
who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, You shall be built, and to the temple your foundations shall be laid. That is remarkable. 200 years before it happened, God said King Cyrus was going to be the king who would give the instructions to rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And that is exactly what Cyrus did as the book of Ezra opens. Now let's go back there to the book of Ezra. So Cyrus issued the decree for the people to return to their homeland. Verse 5 tells us, Then the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites, with all, those, all whose spirits God had moved, arose to go up and build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. Now understand something. Not all the people returned, not by any means. In fact, out of a total Jewish population of perhaps two or three million, only 48,897, we know the exact number, 48,897 choose to take advantage of this offer that Cyrus gives. Obviously, it wouldn't be easy to go back and start all over. For one thing, the trip would involve 900 miles of travel. And remember, this is the year 538 B.C. There weren't airplanes or trains or cars, so the journey would be long and difficult. But some were willing to go. Some were willing to return. They loved their homeland too much to stay away. They were willing to pay the price to go back to rebuild the city, rebuild the temple, rebuild their lives in their promised land. And in verse 6 it says, And all those who were around them encouraged them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with precious things besides all that was, all that was willingly offered. King Cyrus also brought, brought out of the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem and put in the temple of his gods, and Cyrus, king of Persia, brought them out by the hand of Mithridath, the treasurer, and counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. Now, here at this point in the story, we are introduced to the man who led the first group back to Jerusalem. Sheshbazar was his Babylonian name, but we know him by his Jewish name, Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel led the first return from Babylon back to Jerusalem. He was a godly man who had a heart for the Lord's people and a heart for the Lord's temple, so he led the group back to begin rebuilding the temple. In chapter 2, we have a list of the people, the families, the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, Solomon's servants, and others who made this long trek back. As I mentioned a moment ago, the total number of the people who made this first return was just under 50,000. They took with them 277,550 ounces of gold and 6,250 pounds of silver, and the journey lasted at least four months. Think of that. Can you fathom what it would be like to journey to some place that took over four months to get to? I talked to someone this afternoon who recently made a trip and they had a really bad seat on the airplane, the very last seat. It didn't recline. The people in front of them reclined in their face. They said it was four hours and it felt like eight hours. Well, can you imagine four months? Four months? That's what this faithful remnant did and they finally made it. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. And when the seventh month had come and the children of Israel were in the cities, 
The people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Now, try to picture that in your mind. Like a modern sporting event, there were close to 50,000 people all gathered together, and Zerubbabel knew what needed to be done first. It was going to take a long time to get the temple rebuilt, so it would, have, it would have been very easy for the people to have gotten discouraged and lose heart. So as a wise leader, the first thing Zerubbabel did was to reinstate the feasts and the sacrifices to give the people some stability and so forth for the, the long period of time it would take to rebuild the temple and so forth. So in verse 2 we read this, Then Jeshua, the son of Jazadak, uh, and his brethren, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brethren, arose and built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Though fear had come upon them because of the people of those countries, they set the altar on its bases, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and the evening burnt offerings. They also kept the Feast of Tabernacles, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings in the number required by ordinance for each day. Afterwards, they offered the regular burnt offering and those for the new moons and for all the appointed feasts of the Lord that were consecrated and those of everyone who willingly offered a free will offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, although the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. See, the temple reconstruction hadn't even started yet. But the sacrificial system was reinstated to, peop- to give the people some religious stability, some excitement, some hope that they could, they could make a, a go of this. Then the temple work began, down in verse 8. It says, Now in the second month of the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, Jeshua, the son of Jazadok, and the rest of their brethren, and the priests, and the Levites, and all those who had come out of the captivity of Jerusalem, began work and appointed the Levites from 20 years old and above to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. Then Jeshua with his sons and brothers, Kadmiel with his sons and the sons of Judah, rose as one to oversee those working on the house of God, the sons of uh, Henadad with their sons and their brethren, the Levites. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His mercy endures forever toward Israel. Then all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. What a great time in Israel's history. Think about this. They have been through a lot. Judgment by the hand of their God deserved judgment. Seventy years of captivity, long return, beginning to rebuild their lives, and they're finally beginning to get things back together. This is a great time. But it seems like there are always some people who feel like it is their job to throw cold water on everything God is doing. Their negative attitudes dampen the spirits of everyone around them because they are so unthankful, so ungrateful, so unappreciative, and that's exactly what happens here. Shouldn't surprise us. Verse 12 tells us, But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes. Yet many shouted aloud for joy. Now I want you to understand what's happening here. 
Some of the older members of the community began weeping because this temple, it was obvious when they laid the foundation, this temple wasn't going to, was going to be much smaller and less glorious than Solomon's temple. And when this happened, when they began to weep and be, be discouraged and downhearted, some of the other members in the community who realized how discouraging this kind of attitude can be, they counteracted it by shouting louder, joyfully. And verse 13 tells us, So that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard afar off. It's so neat to see how God works. The joyous shouting counteracted the negative weeping at a time when it was critical that the workers not get discouraged. The workers couldn't hear the negative voices because of all the positive voices. By the way, by the way, which category are you in? Think about it. Which category are you in? Are you one of those who shouts joyfully because you can see God's hand at work in and through his church? Or are you one, of, one who finds something wrong with everything that goes on in church? You know, some people like that, people like that are, are so discouraging to be around because they're so negative. There are some people who can walk through a beautiful meadow and find the only cow pie in it. That's just the way they are. It reminds me of a story I've told in the past about two farmers, one an optimist and the other a pessimist. One day the optimist asked the pessimist if he would like to go duck hunting. And the pessimist said, no, I'm not interested. There aren't any good places to duck hunt anymore. All the good places are gone. I don't want to go. But the optimist persisted. And he said he wanted to go because he wanted to give it a try because he had just gotten a great new duck hunting dog and he wanted to give him some work. The pessimist responded, I doubt it. I doubt your dog's any good. There aren't any good duck, any good duck hunting dogs anymore. I doubt yours is any good. Well, finally, the op optimist convinced the pessimist to go along. So they got out in place. They got out to the pond. And when the ducks flew down and they were coming in, the pessimist shot one. And it came down right out in the middle of the lake. And the pessimist said, that's the way it always happens. The ducks never fall near the shore. It's always in the middle of the lake. But the optimist responded, no problem. Watch this dog of mine go to work. So he commanded the dog to go fetch the duck. And that dog ran out to the middle of the pond on top of the water and brought that duck back. The optimist was proud as a peacock. And the pessimist replied, see, I told you that dog isn't any good. He can't even swim. <laughs> well, you know, that's the way some people are. I, I've had enough experience to know that's the way some people are. They see the negative side of everything. But thankfully, God has his people who shout aloud for joy in the midst of his work, even when everything isn't all that we would like it to be, everything it could be or everything it should be. That's extremely important to have people like that because not only is there discouragement from within to contend with, often there is also opposition from without to contend with. And here it comes in chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 4 tells us, Then the people of the land tried to discourage the people of Judah. They troubled them in building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And in fact, they did frustrate their purposes. 
It says they tried to, they did. The foundation of the temple was laid in 536 B.C., but the work was discontinued until 534 B.C., and it was not resumed, now catch this, for 14 years until 520 B.C., and then it was finished in 515 B.C. during the reign of Darius I. Down in verse 24, just skip down to verse 24, same chapter. Thus the work of the house of, the, of God, which is at Jerusalem, ceased, and it was discontinued until the second year of the reign of Darius, or Darius, king of Persia. Beloved, you're looking at 14 years of work stoppage in that one verse. 14 years. But as I mentioned, the work began again in 520 B.C. Chapter 5, verse 1 says, Then the prophet Haggai and Zechariah, you know those two books, they're later in our, uh, our version of the Old Testament, uh, Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophets prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of, uh, of the God of Israel who was over them. So Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jazadak, rose up and began to build the house of God which is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, helping them. So they resume. But here comes the opposition again, verse 3. At the same time, Tatanai, the governor of the region beyond the river, and Shether, Bosnai, and their companions came to them and spoke thus to them, Who has commanded you to build this temple and finish this wall? By the way, do you remember who it was that commanded them? It was Cyrus, king of Persia, who had given them the command. But these governors didn't believe it. So they wrote a letter to Darius to see if he had any record of the decree of Cyrus. Skip down to verse 7. Verse 7 says, they sent a letter to him in which was written this, To Darius the king, all peace. Let it be known to the king that we went into the province of Ju Judea to the temple of the great God which is being built with heavy stones and timber is being laid in the walls and this work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. Then we asked those elders and spoke thus to them, Who has commanded you to build this temple and finish these walls? We also asked them their names to inform you that we might write the names of the men who were chief among them. And thus they returned to us an answer, saying, We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and we are rebuilding the temple that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and completed. But because our fathers provoked the God of heaven to wrath, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this temple and carried the people away to Babylon. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, King Cyrus issued a decree to build this house of God. Also, the gold and silver articles of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple that was in Jerusalem and carried into the temple of Babylon, those King Cyrus took from the temple of Babylon, and they were given to one named Sheshbazar, whom he had made governor. And he said to him, Take these articles, go carry them to the temple site, that is, at Jerusalem, and let the house of God be rebuilt on its former site. Then the same Sheshbazar came and laid the foundation of the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. But from that time, even until now, it has been under construction and it is not finished. Now, therefore, if it seems good to the king, let a search be made in the king's treasure house, which is there in Babylon. Whether it is so that a decree was issued by King Cyrus to build this house of God at Jerusalem. And let the king send us his pleasure concerning this matter. Well, you know what happened. They found it. They found the record. Chapter 6 tells us that. It gives us a copy of what is said in verses 3 through 5. So the official word came back from Darius that this was that, was that the work of, of God or the work on the temple of God should continue. Look at chapter 6, verse 6. Now therefore, Tatanai, 
governor of the region beyond the river, and she, uh, Shethar, Bosnai, and your companions, the Persians who are beyond the river, keep yourselves far from there. Let the work of this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews build this house of God on this site. Moreover, I issue a decree as to what you shall do for the elders of these Jews for the building of this house of God. Let the cost be paid at the king's expense from taxes on the region beyond the river. This is to be given immediately to these men so that they are not hindered. And whenever they need young bulls, rams, and lambs for the burnt offerings of the, of the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, and oil, according to the requests of the priests who are in Jerusalem, let it be given them day by day without fail that they may offer sacrifices of sweet aroma to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Also, I issue a decree that whoever, uh, uh, whoever alters this edict, let a timber be pulled from his house and erected and let him be hanged on it. And let his house be made a refuse heap because of this. And may the God who causes his name to dwell there destroy any king or people who put their hand to alter it or to destroy this house of God which is at Jerusalem. I, Darius, issue a decree. Let it be done diligently. And it was. The temple was finished on March 12, 515 B.C. And now the people are ready to to hold a large dedication ceremony. In verse 16 of this same chapter, we read, Then the children of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the descendants of the captivity celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. Now, beloved, try, if you can, try to comprehend the joy they had on this occasion. Seventy years before this, their magnificent temple had been destroyed and when it had been destroyed, their lives were destroyed for all intents and purposes. Now the temple was rebuilt, not in the same splendor and grandeur, but it was rebuilt. Indeed, there was joy. As we come to chapter 7, we have jumped ahead 58 years. You may want to put that note in, your, in the white spaces there in your Bible. 58-year gap. It is now the year 457 B.C., between chapter 6 and 7, during this 58-year gap, the events of the book of Esther took place, which we'll consider in a couple weeks, Lord willing. But now there is going to be another return from Babylon to Jerusalem, and this one is going to be led by Ezra himself. Remember, the first return under Zerubbabel was to restore the temple of God. The second return under Ezra was to reform the people of God. Even though they had their temple... They weren't living up to the way they were supposed to be living as God's people. So Ezra took a group back to Jerusalem for the express purpose of reforming the people. Look at chapter 7, verse 6. It says, This Ezra came up from Babylon, and he was a skilled scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. The king granted him all his requests according to the hand of the Lord God, Lord his God upon him. That lets us know, and we know from other places, Ezra knew the word of God. He wanted to follow it with all of his heart, and he wanted his people to follow the word of God with all their hearts. And so in verse 10, it says, For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it, and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. That was Ezra's goal when he would arrive in Jerusalem, but first he had to get there. We learn from verses 11 through 26 that King Artaxerxes helped him out very generously. Ezra's response is down in verse 27. 
Notice how he responded. Blessed be the Lord God of our fathers who has put such a thing as this in the king's heart to beautify the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem and has extended mercy to me before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty princes. So I was encouraged as the hand of the Lord my God was upon me and I gathered leading men of Israel to go up with me. So they're getting ready to go. Chapter 8 gives a list of the families that went with Ezra. This time, the group numbered less than 2,000 men. So obviously, they would have been far more vulnerable to attacks than the first group was, and Ezra realized this. This was something that was on his mind. Verse 21 tells us, he says, Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him the right way for us and our little ones and all our possessions. For I was ashamed to request of the king an escort of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy of the road because we had spoken to the king saying, the hand of our God is upon uh, all those for good who seek him. But his power and his wrath are against all those who forsake him. So we fasted and treated our God for this and he answered our prayer. Verse 31, same chapter, says it again. Then we departed from the river Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. And the hand of our God was upon us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from the ambush along the road. So we came to Jerusalem and stayed there three days. But after he had been there for a while, to his brokenheartedness, to his sadness, Ezra found out, that the spiritual condition of the people was not very good. In chapter 9, it says, verse 1, When these things were done, the leaders came to me, saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands with respect to the abominations of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons so that the holy seed is mixed with the people of those lands. Indeed, the hand of the leaders and rulers has been foremost in this trespass. So when I heard this thing, I tore my garment and my robe and plucked out some of the hair of my head and beard and sat down astonished. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel assembled to me because of the transgressions of those who had been carried away captive, and I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. What was Ezra so upset about? Because the people had intermarried with the unbelievers around them. Beloved, this is a a serious issue. I, I don't know how to get God's people to take this more seriously. When God's people intermarry with unbelievers, it almost always results in devastating effects in the life of the believer. Young people here, single people, listen to me. Don't compromise on this point. If you do, I can almost guarantee you that your life will be a spiritual washout. And if if it isn't a washout, there will be consequences. Ezra realized this, so he was devastated. And he turned to the Lord in his devastation. In verse 5, At the evening sacrifice I arose from my fasting, and having torn my garment and my robe, I fell on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. And I said, Oh my God, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has grown up to the heavens. 
Since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been very guilty. And for our iniquities, iniquities we, our kings and our priests, have been delivered into the hands uh, or hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plunder, and to hum humiliation, as it is to this day. And now for a little while, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a peg in his holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and give us a measure of revival in our bondage. For we were slaves, yet our God did not forsake us in our bondage. But he extended mercy to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to revive us, to repair the house of our God, to rebuild its ruins and give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. And now, O oh our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying the land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land with the uncleanness of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations which they have filled it, from one end to another with their impurity. Now therefore do not give your daughters as wives to their sons, nor take their daughters to your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land, and leave it as an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our guilt, since you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve, and have given us such deliverance as this, should we again break your commandments and join in marriage? With the people committing these abominations, would you not be angry with us until you have consumed us so that there would be no remnant or survivor? O oh, Lord God of Israel, you are righteous, for we are left as a remnant as it is to this day. Here we are before you in our guilt, though no one can stand before you because of this. What a prayer. Ezra was broken and burdened because of the spiritual condition of the people. You see, when a believer is willing to compromise and marry an unbeliever, it reveals the lack of spiritual depth and perception and commitment in that believer's heart. And I'm sure that bothered Ezra as much as the fact that they had actually carried through and married unbelievers. Ezra was crushed. And his concern for the spiritual condition of the people didn't go unnoticed. In fact, it seems to have had an impact on others. Because chapter 10 tells us, while Ezra was praying and while he was confessing, weeping and bowing down before the house of God, a very large assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him from Israel. For the people wept very bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, and one of the sons of Elam, spoke up and said to Ezra, We have trespassed against our God and have taken pagan wives from the peoples of the land. Yet now there is hope in Israel in spite of this. Now, therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and those who have been born to them according to the advice of my master and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for this matter is your responsibility. We also are with you. Be of good courage and do it. And that's exactly what they did. Down in verse 9, it says, All the men of Judah and Benjamin gathered at Jerusalem within three days. It was the ninth month on the 20th of the month, and all the people sat in the open square of the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have transgressed and have taken pagan wives, adding to the guilt of Israel. Now therefore make confession to the Lord God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the people of the land and from the pagan wives. And all the assembly answered and said with a loud voice, Yes, as you have said, we must do. And down in verse 19 we read, And they gave their promise that they would put away their wives, and being guilty they presented a ram of the flock as their trespass offering. Now some of you are in shock right now. You mean they actually divorced their wives and families? That's right. That's what they did. Is this what God wants a believer to do today who is married to an unbeliever? No. 
But this shows us how serious of an issue this is. This was the right way to handle, the right way for them to handle their sin back then, but it's different for us today under the new covenant. We know from 1 Corinthians 7 that God says if you're married to an unbeliever who wants to stay in the marriage, then you should stay in the marriage and be a Christian testimony to your unsaved spouse. But that doesn't mean you should purposely marry a non-Christian. 1 Corinthians gives that instruction because there are cases in which two non-Christians marry, but in time one comes to faith in Christ. What should the believer do in that circumstance? Should he or she divorce the non-Christian spouse? No. No. Stay in the marriage, God's Word says, and be a Christian testimony to your unsaved spouse. And if you have sinned against God by marrying a non-Christian when you were a Christian, then confess that sin to the Lord and do the same thing 1 Corinthians says. Stay in the marriage and be a Christian testimony to your unsaved spouse. But this shows us the seriousness of the issue as the children of Israel divorced their pagan spouses. You know what else this shows me? This shows me how far the children of Israel were willing to go to do the will of God once they got their hearts right with God. That's what stands out to me most. Are you, honestly now, are you willing to, to do whatever it takes to do the will of God once you learn it? Are you willing to do whatever it takes to do the will of God once you learn it? Sadly, not all Christians are. Some Christians, once they learn what the Word of God teaches about a certain matter, still aren't willing to do what is necessary to comply. They just won't do it. Instead, they try to rationalize around it, excuse it, whatever else they can do, instead of doing what the Word of God says. So as we close this message, I think this is a good way to close with this evaluation resting on our minds. Are we willing to do whatever it takes to do the will of God once we see it in the Word of God? Let's ask the Lord to make our hearts willing. Let's bow together. And Father, that is our prayer as we close, as we Look at this historical account of what happened in Ezra's day with the people. That was a, a rather shocking response that they gave, rather amazing response, that they would divorce their wives, their children, because they saw from the law of God under the Old Covenant that what they had done was wrong and that the right way to try to somehow uh, rectify the situation was to separate, to break off those relationships. We know from 1 Corinthians 7 it doesn't look the same way to us today, but nonetheless, the principle still is very, very gripping to us. They were willing to do whatever was necessary to comply with your word. And so, Father, my prayer is that we too, your people today under the new covenant, would be willing to do whatever is necessary to comply with what your word says to us that is required to us as your people in this day and age. May that thought not quickly leave us. In fact, Father, I pray that it would grip us from this day forward always as a reminder. Am I willing to do whatever is necessary to conform my life to the word of God when I see clearly what the Word of God says. May each and every one of us be able to honestly say, yes, by God's grace, yes, that's the way I will live my life. We pray this 
not only for our own spiritual benefit, but for the glory of the one whom we represent in life, our Savior, our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus. Amen.